is Wednesday. It is March 17, 2010. I am some kind of stoked because we are going to Mexico tomorrow. And uh, 16 of us, which is, that's a pretty big trip for us. I think one time we took 22. But as I've been thinking about this and as I began dwelling on what the Lord may want to share, the first thing that I want to tell you is how proud I am of this church. Uh, we're able to match everything that all of the other churches are doing. Uh, and they're, they're pushing us hard. They, they today called and told me of how far they're going into sacrifice. And uh, we just smiled up the ante a little further. And uh, we have a little godly competition to see who can get to the bone first with their cuts. And uh, the neat thing is the poor benefit. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. Our Spanish services are flourishing. We're going to do some joint services probably in the month of May. Uh, they asked if we would become their covering. I kind of laughed and said we would be each other's covering. Uh, you know, the body of Christ is not a hierarchy. It, it is a round table that Jesus is the head of. The sooner that Americans get hold of that concept, the more we will flourish. As I wanted to tell you, I am proud of you. Um, we concentrate very often in here on what needs to change. We concentrate on discipline. We preach a very hard word. I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that you are a precious metal, a precious stone, or God would not have drawn you here. Our job, our goal, is not to change who you are. It's not to mold you into the image of some cookie-cutter Christian stamp. I don't care if you have a Bible or a briefcase that's like mine. We don't want you to be as handsome as Matthew. This is not the goal. The goal is to polish who God made you and for us to help you learn to shine. And I believe that's happening. After I preached Sunday's word, even in the message, people responded. Step forward and try to do whatever you can do that would glorify Jesus. This is awesome. What's even better than that is... If what we're trying to do to glorify Jesus needs to be changed a little bit for somebody's benefit, everybody's willing to do that. This is the kingdom. That's how the kingdom's supposed to operate. And I want you to know I am proud of you. Having said that, there is one topic that I think our church would benefit from. I benefit from it, and it has to do with high places. Turn with me to Psalm 91. Tell me when you're there, and... Uh, we're probably not going to read all of Psalm 91, but I want to read enough of it to remind you of what's in it. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Why do you need a fortress? Why do you need a refuge? You have to be under attack, right? I mean, little kids go out in the woods and build forts. I used to steal construction materials to do it as a little boy. I could carry a half a sheet of plywood on my bicycle. And when we found those, those nails that uh, you shoot out of nail guns, that was like gold, right? And uh, we built them because we got in our forts, and then we imagined we were being attacked from every side. And we threw dirt clods at each other and shot each other with BB guns. And everything that I tell my children not to do, we, we did. Forts... Refuges, fortresses, these are because you're under attack. While this scripture sounds poetic, it sounds beautiful. Man, you'll rest in his shadow. It sounds uh, like protection. You need to understand that it is also a description of warfare. Listen how, how he moves on from there. 
Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare. What's that mean? <laughs> There's somebody trying to catch you in a net just like you were a bird. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. I don't have time to teach on that, but these zitzi are what the Jews think of as feathers and wings. They picture God covering you. But the point is, his presence needs to protect you, needs to cover you. His faithfulness will be your shield and a rampart. Why would you need a shield or a rampart? Because you're being attacked. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day. He didn't say there wouldn't be arrows. He didn't say there wouldn't be terror at night. He said you won't need to fear those things. Nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Well, it'll come near enough to you that you can see a thousand fall on one side and ten thousand on the other. See, sometimes we have the idea that if we're in the kingdom, if we're walking in God's will, we're insulated from all harm. I don't believe that's what Psalm 91 teaches. In fact, look how it finishes up. Go down to the last few verses. Uh, verse 15. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. Where will he be with you? In trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. For you to see God's salvation, there must be a revelation of the trouble that you're in. You must be saved from something to be saved. How many of you applaud a lifeguard for shaking your hand on dry ground? The lifeguard becomes a lifeguard when you are in the water and you can't swim. The Christian life is one that is surrounded by warfare on every side, yet you do not fear because your God is saving you through the midst of trouble. I want to admit to you something. The warfare can be tiring, right? There's no way to get out of the ring. You can lay down and let the enemy kick you. You can let a bag come over your head. You can give up for a while, go against the ropes, and hope he gets too tired to hit you. But you cannot get out of this warfare. Because of this, Psalm 73 describes something. Get there with me. It's uh, to the left in your Bible. If you get anything from Psalm 91, it's that you are surrounded by warfare, but protected and delivered through it. I think the American church would prefer to think of us as delivered from it. That's not very biblical. Uh, even Israel, delivered through plagues, delivered through the Red Sea, through the desert, not, not from. Noah, delivered through the flood, not, not from the flood. You don't see very many deliverances from, you see deliverance through. Through. So in Psalm 73, listen to this language. Tell me that you've never been here. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. If you feel surrounded by trouble on every side, you can forget that God is delivering you through that trouble. You can begin to look at those around you that their lives look a little easier. And there can be a level of envy there. Why am I the only one that struggles with this? So-and-so doesn't have to. The disciples were doing this even after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus makes a reference that sounds like John is going to live forever, right? It's not quite what he said. And Peter goes, why him? Right? What is that to thee, follow thou me, the King James says? Right? From a normal perspective in our lives, you can get tired that you are struggling with this or that. You can start to look and go, but that guy never has to do this. And life becomes self-centered at that point. 
why me? And you can become envious of what's going on around you. He goes on to talk about how carefree from burdens the lost are. Now, the truth is, the lost are not carefree from burdens. You know this. I've been one of them. I used to drive the porcelain bus, lose my lunch, all of those things, just like they do, and be full of regrets the next day, right? They're not carefree, but there is a place that you can get in in your Christian walk where people say you're battle-weary. If you are battle-weary, then you are fighting your battles instead of the Lord fighting them for you. You have begun to think that your own arm will bring deliverance. You've begun to misunderstand why you're here. You are here to be in the midst of trouble, but experiencing salvation through it, and everybody sees that. And it can't be based on your own strength, or everybody would just think you were the Savior. So Christians get into an uh, attitude, you'll even hear it sometimes. We say things like, man, when I was lost, I would have... What is that? Are you, are you wanting to go back to Egypt? Sometimes we don't say it. But in our minds, we have these little lost ways of dealing with things. In Israel, I've taught this before, so I won't belabor this point. In Israel, there's a mountain range that extends from the northern part of Israel to the southern part. For the sake of simplicity, if you divide this into two categories, the eastern side is very dry. It's arid. The southeastern part, the most dry, the most arid. You can see it on that map back there, the bottom right-hand corner. Here's the thing. Most of the prophets, almost all of them, came from that area. It was a place where you had to trust God for your provision. You didn't get water unless he brought it to you. You didn't have food unless he brought it to you. This is why we have stories of birds flying in food for prophets in this area. Of the 350 cities that are easily identifiable today in archaeology from Israel, 300 of them are on the arid side. Only 50 are on the easy side. See, the mountains form a coastal slope in the Valley of Sharon. If y'all sung songs about the rose of the Valley of Sharon, the Valley of Sharon provides 80% of Europe's agriculture today. That's where they get their fruit and stuff for all of Europe is Israel. It's the best in the world. But that's not where God settled most of his people. And what would happen is, sometimes they would climb up a mountain like their foot was almost slipping. And they would look over to the other side and see how easy life was. And they would regret that they had to trust God every day for their provision. They would regret that they had nothing stored that they could lean on. They would regret that they had to show faith. Now tell me that doesn't speak a message to us. When they climbed those mountains and looked over to the other side, they found something there. You can turn to uh, Numbers 33. In Numbers 33, look at 51. Speaking of climbing those mountains. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, drive out all of the inhabitants of the land before you, Destroy all their carved images and their cast idols and demolish all their high places. When they got into these mountains to look on the other side and see how people were living, they found something. Existent places of worship that the Bible calls 
high places. See, the Philistines also lived in that coastal plain. In fact, the Philistines were a little bit like uh, ancient Vikings, you know. They traveled out to sea a little bit just to go around to a port to kill somebody else and take their stuff. They were really uh, an amazing people for their time, and they settled in the best of the best land. And this is why the Romans later called that whole area Palestine. They were trying to attribute it to the Philistines. But here's my point. When they wanted to worship, they went up into the mountains to get closer to their gods, right? They thought that by ascending a mountain, they were ascending closer to God, and they left there symbols of their worship. So when an Israelite on the eastern side begins to regret his life of trust, begins to regret that he has nothing stored and he must depend upon God, he climbs up this mountain to peek over to the other side and see how the other half's living. And while he's up there, he just happens to find the ways that they worship. And a thought enters his mind. Maybe Dagon, maybe a fertility cult, maybe Asherah, maybe these guys provide an easier life for their people. And that's why they're blessed. It's interesting that the first time that this is really mentioned in a light other than destroying high places, because God tells them in Leviticus, if you, uh, if you don't do well and I have to banish you, if I have to punish you, I will kill you on your high places. He tells them that before they even go in. Then in Numbers 33, he says, destroy all of these high places. You smash them all. Don't leave any of them. You don't see high places again in the Bible until you get to 1 Kings. Let's go to 1 Kings. You'll be moving to the right in your Bible. If you get to Samuel, keep going. 1 Kings, look at the third chapter. It's not much to read here, but it is an interesting point. 1 Kings 3. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he married his daughter. I have a lot to say about that, but probably not tonight. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of Yahweh and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. Now, no mention of who he's sacrificing to. I'm going to assume that it's Yahweh. See, the devil is subtle, and he does not get believers to go act like Anton LaVey in the cult of Satan. What he does is get believers to try to worship God in unholy ways. And so what happens is, our church services, our lives become just a little bit more like the world. And we still say we're worshiping God. This is like Ahaz and his new altar and so many stories here. What I want to submit to you today is that David didn't do this. Saul didn't do this. Samuel did not do this. They all worship God at Moses' tabernacle. They worship God at places... With other believers. For some reason, Solomon returns to high places in the mountains to worship. And God seems to allow it. I mean, he even shows up at one of these high places and talks to Solomon. The fact that God is blessing your life is not an indication that there are no high places in it. 
When we think of high places, and we're going to move on to talk about these a little more, I want to encourage you something, in something. There can be high places in your life that are not much more than thoughts. Every time a name comes to mind, does it fill you with anxiousness, uneasiness? Is there a relative that when you think of, little birds don't sing in your ears? Come on now. It is easy to get used to worshiping the Lord right alongside high places. For tonight's message, I would like you to begin to think of high places as strongholds in your thought realm. Areas of your thought, areas of your mind that you have ceded to the enemy, that in this one area you will act like the world. You won't call it that, but truthfully it's kind of how it happens. Like, you know, when we're at church teaching, when we're at Sunday school, oh, love, love, love. But in the business world, sometimes, brother, you got you got to get a little rougher. No, that's a high place. You know, in this instance, if I don't stand up for myself, what did a guy tell me one time? Brother, you only got two cheeks to turn. All of these worldly wisdom kind of statements, those are high places. Come on now, God helps those that help themselves. High place. Anything that has the appearance of godliness, but in the end it does not depend upon the power of God, high place. All of a sudden the church is looking littered with high places. You say, but we worship the Lord. We found His power this morning. I mean, He showed up and He did this and this and this. He did for Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years right alongside their high place. But He told them, destroy them. I want to tell you something. A high place in your life never stays just one. You think, well, I understand what you're saying, Eric, but it's really, it's just this one person that I've got a problem with. I mean, and your face almost contorts when you think of them. I've had a little pain in my life. I understand what that's like. The problem is, is high places have a way of multiplying. They never stay just one. What you do in one area starts to trickle over into the other areas. And pretty soon you start saying things like, that Debbie is just like Alicia. High places just multiply. You see the way Cass looked at me? That's just like Debbie does. <laughs> I think the most uh, obvious examples that could not be such. <laughs> High places have a way of multiplying. So Solomon at first is worshiping the Lord, but also has got these high places. How does he end his life? He's sacrificing human beings. They have a way of multiplying. I don't think we ought to go there, but I want to tell you, Solomon had a son, Rohoboam. In Rohoboam's day, there is a split in the kingdom. All ten northern tribes go to war against the two southern tribes. Rohoboam's in the south. That is called Judah. That's what the whole area was called, the province of Judah. The northern kingdoms, usually called Ephraim, but sometimes called Israel, were ruled by a man, man named Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the first one in all of the Bible to openly try with everything in him to propagate high places. He did it expressly, openly, so that no one would go to worship the Lord in the prescribed way. What this is very much like, <clears throat> let me pick an absurd example that I hope never happens. This would be like when a church says, you know, it's really not necessary that we actually attend 
Uh, let's just have a drive-through service. <laughs> Seems laughable until it happens. I want to tell you what's going on in our churches now was laughable 20 years ago. Build a McDonald's playland inside so that people will come. Put a coffee shop inside so that people will come. Don't carry your Bibles so that people will come. Don't preach on blood so that the people will come. Remove the baptism in the Holy Ghost so the people will come. This is high place. It's high place. It's, it is a contamination of God's worship. But I don't want to talk about them. I want to talk about us. They have a way of multiplying. It's one thing for Jeroboam who breaks away. If you want to read about that, you can read about it in 1 Kings 13. 22 through 33 speaks of him propagating high places. Jeroboam's known in the Bible as Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And he goes down as a really bad guy. But you would think Solomon's son. Solomon's son would do better. In 1 Kings 14, 23, not only did he begin to set up more high places, he put male shrines prostitutes in them. Yeah. Like San Francisco, right there in Israel. <laughs> A thing that was never done. It was detestable. It's the kind of thing that even pagan nations struggled with. They always take you further than you wanted to go. Because these high places are like a cancer. It's a cancer of compromise. And when you allow one area of your life to be wrong and you know it, you can call it a stronghold, a fortress, a high place that will cause you to slip over and over and over. It's funny. After those two kings, there's ten more references right in a row in the Bible to high places. You know what the ten references all say? So-and-so did this, but they did not remove the high places. Ten times that occurred. Some of them were awesome men like Asa who served the Lord, but did not remove the high places. See, these are less obvious areas because they're not right in front, in the center. They're not what you show everybody about your life. They're not the part that everybody gets to see. It's the part that occurs as you go and ascend the mountain somewhere alone. It speaks about the internal workings of your heart, the very motives behind your thoughts, why you do the things that you do. Church, I want to invite you to do something. As we have begun to focus our all of our efforts on the right actions, I also want you to begin to examine your motives. I want you to examine your heart. I want you to do what that prophecy said today. Let iron sharpen iron so that you can lay your heart bare. Why do you want the things that you want? What areas of your life do you feel God is just not blessing like the others? Are you really submitted to Him in those? Don't accept a high place in your life because they always multiply and destroy. There was one king, and I, I again, I don't have time to teach on him tonight, but I'll do it. Second uh, Kings 18, Hezekiah. He came, he's the first king who began to systematically destroy all of the high places. He also reinstituted Passover. In fact, they didn't even know how and could not get it right. They did it in the wrong month at the wrong time with people that weren't even consecrated. And as God was about to strike all of the people, Hezekiah said, wait, Lord, Lord, look at their hearts. They are trying to return to you. So God healed them all. 
See, we serve a God that even if you don't get it right, if the inclination of your heart is in the right direction, away from those high places and towards a pure worship, he will credit you with righteousness. He credited them with doing it right even when they didn't because they were turning from something that they knew was wrong. There are areas of strongholds that are unforgiveness that I can feel in our church. I know them in my life. There are strongholds of wrong thinking. Little wedges that the devil works to drive between you and other people. There is never any bigger target than Matthew and I. God put us in your life, whether we're good, bad, or ugly, makes no difference. He put us in your life to help the body of Christ obtain a fuller measure of Jesus. That's why we are here. We are here to serve you in that way. I want to encourage you to examine your thoughts even about us. It is so easy to adopt a negative view of something that becomes a high place. And what the devil is trying to do is to get you to be a little bit worldly in this area so that you do not experience the power and fullness of God. And what people usually do is say, but I worship the Lord. I know. Solomon worshiped the Lord even at his high places at times. But it's a contamination that will grow and take over your life. We must be serious about taking this. I didn't want to preach very, very long tonight. So let's go to Psalm 121. (laughs) Scriptures like this one begin to take on a whole new meaning when you actually know what high places are and where they were. In Psalm 121, it says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. This word is actually hills, mountains. It can be translated high places. Where does my help come from? In English, this sounds kind of silly. In fact, we have songs that sing about it, and I don't know if the men who wrote them, although they're beautiful songs, understand what David's saying. It is a literal question. Am I going to lift my eyes to those things? No, my help comes from the Lord. He's not saying that he will ascend a mountain to worship the Lord. He's expressly saying, I will not go and compromise and try to worship God in the way that they are doing. This is why David messed up over and over and over. But I tell you, he was correctable. And he achieved everything that God purposed for him to achieve in his generation. And Peter said so. He preached it in Acts, one of the finest messages in all of the Bible. He said when he had achieved God's purpose for his generation, he slept with his fathers. And he's in this city today. Interesting, we don't know where his tomb is today, but we know exactly that the apostle said he achieved God's purpose. See, he refused to allow high places to exist in his life. By the way, you may not have to go to a mountain find a high place, you may get to go to a rooftop. See, when the devil couldn't drag him off to worship foreign gods, all they had to do was get him to stay home while everybody else was fighting, and at a high place called a rooftop, he gazed upon something that was someone else's and wanted it for himself. This is like saying, I am not happy with what you've provided me with, Lord. I don't like having to trust, having to live by faith. Instead, I would like what you've given them. See, there are all kinds of ways for high places to manifest in our lives. We have to be about identifying them and destroying them. 
If there's any area of your life that envies, any area of your life that has regret about your position in life, why does God make me do this? I want to tell you, you're in danger of high places. I have been there many times. Were it not for loving brothers who have pointed it out, I'd probably be overwhelmed by them. But we serve a king that will show you how to smash those Asherah poles in your life. He will show you how to pull them down and worship God in purity. It always requires you to humble yourself. Here's the biggest one. The reason that we adopt high places in our thinking, the reason that we have strongholds of unforgiveness, a lack of mercy, of hate, of all kind of unclean things that we don't even need to name in our lives, the reason that a young man stares at a glowing idol in front of him with a mouse in his hand, at the heart of it all is, I am scared that God will not give me what I need, so I must take it for myself. It is an impatience. It is an instant gratification. It is a lack of faith motivated by fear and sin. And almost all negative human behavior can be traced to these things. Why is it that you are upset about this or that? Is it because God didn't do for you what you wanted immediately? Is it because you think that somebody else has an easier role? Do you think that your father is unfair? These are high places. I want to encourage you with some things that the scripture says that should bring you security. That should free you from feeling like you need to judge yourself by anyone else or being uncorrectable. See, one of the problems with saying don't judge yourself by anyone else is there is this haughtiness that appears in us that says I am willing for everyone to misunderstand me. This can be great or it can be a nail in your coffin. If you're willing to be misunderstood because you have heard from Jesus and the world stands against you, power to you. If you're willing to be misunderstood because you feel strongly about something and the Lord hasn't shown you, you're condemning yourself to a direction that you might not be able to be turned from by the very people God has put in your life to help steer you. We need to be very careful that there are not high places. Here is an encouraging scripture about you, every one of you, and your calling. Turn to Psalm 52. Yeah, 57. <clears throat> I will lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. You know, an interesting thing while you're getting to Psalm 57. The Lord is my help. Mandy and Kelsey are each other's help. In Hebrew, this word is ezer. <laughs> It is the other half of me. It's the other half of what God called me to do. When God made for Adam a helpmate, it is an easer. Made for him the other half of him so they together could perform their calling. Listen to what David is then saying. Will I go to the mountains for help? No, my spouse, the other half of me, the one who enables me to do what God has called me to do, is the Lord. Then he begins to brag on he won't let my foot slip. He won't let the sun smite me. He watches over my going in and my coming out. He's essentially saying he's better than the other gods that other people have chosen. How many of you think about Jesus that way on a daily basis? Like a groom. <coughs> Here's Psalm 57. <coughs> have mercy on me, O God. 
have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Whose calling is it? It's his. Whose purpose is it? It's his. Who fulfills it? He does. Your only job is to be pliable in his presence. Your only job is to be correctable in his body. Your only job is to do or say what he tells you to do. We do not have to strive to accomplish ourselves. In fact, that kind of ambition can become a high place. What we must achieve and how we must achieve it and what we must do to get there. No, you have no obligation to do anything other than what the Lord is showing you to do at that moment. Friends, that means that you have to hear from Him. It means that you have to depend upon Him. I know it's easier to climb up to the mountain and look over and see how everyone else is doing it around. Five-year plan for this, that, and the other. Life all mapped out. Your goal is to be utterly dependent upon the Lord like He is your helpmate. Or you are His helpmate. It is His purpose in your life. It is Him who fulfills it. He predestined for you good works to do. How will you know them? He has to show you. How will you do them? He has to empower you. How will you complete them? He has to help you do it. Everything else simply burns up like hay and straw and stubble. One of my favorite preaching clips, we put it on our website, is David Wilkerson saying, most of the ministry that he sees around him is the work of the flesh and of man, and it is powerless, and it's true. It's more programs for this, that, and the other. Our goal needs to be eliminating our own ambitions, the strongholds of our own wrong thinking, and simply being led by him. You know what the best place to be is in that scenario? Desperate. <laughs> we hear best when we don't have a choice. We do best when we have no resources. When we are completely and utterly at his mercy, we're exactly where we pledged to be the day that we got born again. But we spent a lifetime trying to avoid that scenario. We avoid it because when we look around us, we see no one else is in that position. <coughs> High places. I encourage you to be alone, vulnerable before God. Look at Psalm 138. This is another one of my favorites. It's very freeing to me. The Lord spoke some things to me when I got born again that I didn't know how to achieve, but buddy, I wanted to. And I would ram my head into a wall over and over and over doing whatever I thought I could do to achieve what God had told me. It has taken me many years and I still have to be reminded many times. It is not my job to achieve it. His calling, His purpose, His power. Psalm 138, look at verse 8. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. Our effort, our ambition, all of those things is only important to the extent that the Lord is working through us. But if God has called you, let's just for argument's sake say, to be a powerful pastor. You do not need to go to powerful pastor school. 
You don't need to go to Powerful Pastor Clothing Store. You don't need to go to Powerful Pastor Assembly Line and get equipped like all of the Powerful Pastors. You do need to do anything that the Lord would tell you to do, even if it's as crazy as following a fisherman who wears a tunic. You do have to do anything he would tell you to do, even if it means shave your head with a sword. You do have to do anything that he would tell you to do. But our tendencies lean towards all that we must do. And we develop these little strongholds in our lives that when we really get pressed, we resort to ways that are not God's ways. Fear, control, manipulation. All of these things are high places. How do you feel when somebody does not do what you think is God's will for their life? I don't care at all, Eric, as long as they're over there. But what if they're a member of your own household? How do you feel when your spouse is not doing what you think is God's will? So, well, I'm supposed to be grieved by that. Yes, but how do you act about it? Do you set out to try to control them, manipulate them? Do you instill fear in them? Do you take away intimacy so that there's a lack of security and you can control them? See, these are high places. These are ways you are trying to get a godly result in ungodly means, and the church is rife with it, even our church. We must destroy high places. The Lord fulfills His purposes. The Lord will move and will and act according to His purpose. It's our job to identify those areas in us and remove the resistance. The good news is this takes all pressure off of you. You don't have to be driven to achieve. You simply have to follow the Holy Spirit's lead. A purpose-driven church? That sounds like such a neat thing, and I'm not picking on the book or the author. (laughs) A church should not have to be driven. The Lord has a purpose for you, and you simply follow Him. Driving implies that He's forcing you to do something. It's the wrong attitude. That's high places. The Lord will lead you into all of the goodness that He has for you. And some of it could even involve martyrdom. Who knows? But if it's His purpose for your life, it should be the aim and direction of your life. i got one more scripture for you. Can you all stand one more scripture? Yes. Okay, let's go to 2 Corinthians. I want to talk to you about how to identify high places in your life. Especially high places in thought. Right? 
You might do whatever you could even say pros and cons. Mario, I've been in your situation, and frankly, here's what I like to do. I like to think of the pros and cons. Here are the cons. Here are the pros. Mario, can't you see that this is what we need to do? Right. When we make an appeal, it's because we want somebody to do something. Listen to how Paul makes his appeal. Meekness and gentleness of Christ. Does this sound like he's trying to manipulate them? Does it sound like he's trying to force them? No, he's saying, I'm appealing to you to get into the flow of Jesus here. I want you to hear what Jesus is saying through me. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. For the purpose of our teaching tonight, I would like you to think of strongholds as areas of your life where you still harbor things that are worldly, where you still handle things in worldly ways. This can be everything from unforgiveness of a relative to manipulation of somebody you love until they do what you want. It can be anything that is trying to get a godly outcome in an ungodly way. And examine your thoughts. Examine the motives behind what you're doing and ask, is this meekness and gentleness of Christ? Or is this simply a leftover from a life that's supposed to have died? Here's how you do it. We demolish arguments and every pretension. An argument is two factions fighting. A pretension is a claim as to who's right. That sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. There needs to be a Holy Ghost filter based on God's word being in you. That with every action, with every thought, you are comparing it to your knowledge of what Jesus is like. And anything that does not pass that test must be seized, taken captive, and killed. As soon as we relent in one area and we say, well, I'm going to let this area slide, the high places begin to multiply in our life. And before you know it, Somebody that had a little problem with joy is suddenly a bitter person. Before you know it, somebody that just had a little unforgiveness towards one person suddenly has got a long list of people. Somebody who had a small problem with one person's use of authority suddenly hates all authority. High places multiply. I'm telling you that as a church, we are doing the right things. The next step is examining why we do them and what our thoughts are regarding them. Because when we get this area right, you will be immovable. No matter what you have to stand against, no matter where you have to go, no matter what you have to do, you'll be able to relax in the peace of the Lord, knowing that your motives are beyond question, that if the whole world does stand against you, you have a clean conscience before God. You can't get into that place, and you can't do that with high places there. That kind of dualistic worship will overcome you. Can you say amen to that? Amen. amen. All right. We're going to stand. We're going to pray because we have to be back here in just a very few hours. <laughs> we're just sleeping. Huh? Yeah, I would. I really would. I have a lock in. A lock in.
I'd rather have a lockout. <laughs> <laughs> Next time you hear Ron Canoli's song going up to the high places to tear the devil's kingdom down, don't think of it as somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. um, if I didn't get to tell you enough, I really am proud. I am so excited. When I tell this other pastor, we've got 16 people. He only had 10. Uh, he went. And he must have emptied his, uh, you know, his whole bank of favors because now he's got more than 16 going. So he told me he had a thousand dollars. I told him I had fourteen hundred. So then he went and bought four more bikes. So you know, I don't know, but we we're going to compete to go as far as we possibly can uh, in Jesus, and that's a good thing. And I love it. This is the kind of thing that God arranges. Uh, and I want to encourage you: don't compete with anybody in anything except love for the Lord. That's okay to compete in, and you know what? We'll try to outdo each other in every regard. It will make you better for it. Amen. Why don't we pray? Jorge, would you pray for us, brother? Man avails much. Amen. Hallelujah.